This is Primal Screen, a weekly radio show airing Monday evenings on Triple R. Primal Screen is about movies, from the ones on the big screen to the ones you stream. Hope you enjoy the podcast version and feel free to get in touch via the Primal Screen Facebook page or the Triple R website. Uh, welcome. I am your host, Paul Anthony Nelson, stepping in for Flick, Floor, uh, Flick Ford, who's unable to host this week. And here, broadcasting alongside me in the glorious three Triple R studios in Brunswick, is my old pal, former co-host, intellectual sparring partner and editor of the Midnight Movie Monographs edition of Bride of Frankenstein, currently available from pspublishing.co.uk, is Emma Westwood. Thanks, Paul. Thanks for that plug. It's no. on pre-order. It's not actually out yet, but... Um, the site was telling me it had a release date of January 2023. Ah, uh, well, yeah, that's, that's small publishing houses, isn't it, for you? <laughs> ambitious, lofty <Yeah>. ambitions. <laughs> it's about like, it's like trying to get triple R shows up. Um, <laughs> some technical difficulties going we're on in the background, there. but we're, we're good. We're, we're back. Um, now, it might seem that I ever... That I only ever host this show if there's a year-end countdown or scary movies to talk about, and you'd be absolutely right. Yep. Because we're devoting tonight's show to the Australian Centre of the Moving Images Mapping Global Horror Conference, being held at ACME this coming weekend on the 17th and 18th of March. Tonight we'll be chatting to RMIT's... um, I'm so sorry, Jessica, uh, because of our difficulties, I didn't get a primer on how to pronounce your surname, so apologies if I bugger it up, but we'll find out later. Uh, you had a good read on it, actually. Jessica, now, all right, Jessica, is this, is this okay? Balancetegui. Balancetegui. Oh, that, that, that was a beautiful first attempt with no practice. That was pretty much right. Balancetegui. <laughs> Well done. Beautiful. <laughs> uh, that was teamwork. It doesn't often happen. <laughs> Thanks, Jessica. <laughs> uh, Jessica Balanzatecki and uh, uh, Swinburne University's Andrew Lynch about the conference. And then Emma and I will take a bite out of Acme's accompanying Focus on the Dead film program, which will be running in concurrent with the, uh, with the conference. And finally, we'll be chatting to the director and co-writer of the recent Australia, well, 2020 Australian horror hit, Relic. Uh, which also has a focus in the conference, and that is Natalie Erica James. So what is the Mapping Global Horror Australia, Japan and Beyond conference all about? All weekend, you'll be treated to roundtable chats between world-leading scholars and filmmakers, exploring various aspects of the horror genre as a historical, contemporary and worldwide phenomenon. Organised by the Global Horror Studies Archival and Research Network, this is part of a series of symposiums being held around the world for horror scholars to meet, share resources and maintain a dialogue. It began with conferences held last year in the University of Pittsburgh in the US and Kyoto University in Japan, with this week's conference in Acme in Melbourne being the third. Now, horror nerds may guess that this, the fact this all began in Pittsburgh is no mere coincidence, because this network of horror studies conferences is indeed aligned with the George A. Romero Foundation, which is devoted to supporting new generations of filmmakers, artists and fans inspired by his legacy, as well as the great man's work and influence itself. Aimed at anyone who's interested in horror, there will be discussions about women in horror, George A. Romero's impact on global horror, folk horror as global horror, Streaming genre and horror, filmmakers on horror, horror exhibitions and uh, exhibition and festivals, mapping global horror, and in conversation events with Kayako Asakura, director of My Girlfriend is a Serial Killer, and our special guest tonight, 
relics, Natalie, Erica, James. Um, and these are in-conversation chats will be accompanied by screenings of their films. Now, just a quick primer, Em. I thought I'd just yeah. go into a little bit of a potted history of, of global horror. Fabulous. So, despite the cultural stranglehold that Hollywood has long held over the world, horror has always been a global phenomenon. The very first horror experiments began in France with Georges Méliès' 1896 short, silent, triple feature of A Terrible Night, The Haunted Castle and A Nightmare, uh, while Italy gave us the first acknowledged horror-adjacent feature film in 1911 with Dante's Inferno, while Germany scared up the most acclaimed of horror silent films between 1920 and 1922 with The Cabinet of Dr Caligari, The Golem, How He Came Into the World and Nosferatu. The American studios would jump in soon after with Universal's first monster movies, The Hunchback of Notre Dame and Phantom of the Opera, while the Japanese would give us A Page of Madness, the earliest surviving horror feature from that nation. Unfortunately, various European and Asian film industries would be halted by various involvements in armed conflicts, a period that Hollywood took control of the narrative, mostly via Universal and their famous monster movies of the 1930s and 40s, followed by Val Luton's Creep Fests of the 1940s, mm, which we love. Very close to my heart. Mm-hmm. Once the dust of World War II cleared, horror emerged from all parts of the globe. Godzilla and his atomic kaiju pals, and ghost stories like Kwajan, Onibaba and Kuraneko in the 50s and 60s. Ghost stories and folk tales from across Eastern Europe and Russia, like V, uh, Mother Joan of the Angels, the third, third part of the night, and so many more to mention. Or from Brazil, where cult terror Coffin Joe horrified audiences over multiple films. Or Canada, where David Cronenberg and Bob Clark unleashed their demented visions upon 1970s audiences. To Australia, where the dual unofficial cinematic movements of the new wave and exploitation gave us everything from killer telekinetics to wild boars. Into the 1990s, where J-horror emerged with a vengeance from Japan, redefining what Hollywood horror would look like into the 21st century. And even countries like India and Indonesia, not known outside their borders for horror cinema throughout the 20th century, blazing new trails in this one, in, in this century, with hugely popular films like Tumbad, Bulbul, Impetigor, May the Devil Take You, and Satan's Slaves making their name on global streaming services. There are hundreds, thousands more films I've not mentioned, and still more countries making their presence felt as movie-making equipment and distribution methods become more accessible. Was that a potted history? My God. (laughs) (laughs) That was actually quite a lot, Paul. Thank you for that. A pretty big pot. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, exactly. A big melting pot. The big melting (laughs) wok of uh, horror worldwide. Now, with all that in mind, it's probably time to introduce our guests. Uh, our first guest, at least. So, first we have Senior Lecturer in Media Studies at RMIT and author of the books The Uncanny Child in Transna- uh, Transnational Cinema and Netflix, Dark Fantastic Genres and Intergenerational Viewing, and founding editor of Amsterdam University Press's book series Horror and Gothic Media Cultures, Jessica Balanzit... I've messed it up again! <laughs> This happened with Spiro, and now it's going to happen here. Uh, uh, I'm I'm going to get this. Uh, Balanzategi. Beautiful. Perfect. And you're totally forgiven because that potted history was so comprehensive. So I'm so no sorry. I, I, you don't know how many years I gave um, poor old Thomas Caldwell stick on this show over mispronouncing people's names. And then every time I get on. <laughs> it's a Thomas curse. It's a Thomas he curse. He cursed you. <laughs> uh, and Jessica is joined by a lecturer in cinema and screen studies in the Department of Media and Communication of 
at Swinburne University of Technology and author of Quality Telefantasy, How US Quality TV Brought Zombies, Dragons and Androids into the Mainstream, Andrew Lynch. Thanks for having me. Welcome, welcome, welcome. So thank you both so much for joining us. Um, First question off the bat, what does mapping global horror mean to you both and why is it an important thing to do? Oh, I think that the comprehensiveness and richness of your potted history shows us why it's it's important to map global horror and do it more than once. As your introduction uh, discussed, this is part of a global network that's trying to uh, pinpoint how horror is evolving internationally because it's becoming an increasingly international genre for a range of different reasons that the co- the conference will explore. So, um, and we're excited about the fact that the conference, as you mentioned, kind of combines filmmakers, uh, film curators and festival organisers, for instance, the convener of um, MonsterFest, amazing horror film festival that happens here in Melbourne, uh, as well as scholars from around the world. So we've got scholars from Japan, from the US, obviously here, from here in Australia. Uh, so we've got a whole mix of people reflecting on how horror is changing with the rise of streaming, for instance, and how something like the rise of streaming, Netflix being a global platform with regional specificities, so how something like the rise of Netflix, the rise of streaming more broadly, might be impacting the way horror films are made, the way horror films are watched, and kind of hotspots of activity as well. So there's lots of different things to consider, I guess, when we're mapping how the genre works globally. Yeah, I totally agree. And I feel like horror is such a a useful genre. It's often thought of as a bit of a cultural yardstick. You know, you can look at horror of a certain place and a certain time, and it tells you a lot about the people who lived in that place and lived in that time because it, you know, explores, you know, local anxieties and, you know, temporally specific um, anxieties. But it's also a bit of an industrial yardstick too. You know, you can really chart different eras of horror production. You know, horror goes from the mainstream out of the mainstream again, you know, it courts controversy, it kind of prods at the, you know, at the edges of, of, of cultural taboos of what's okay or not uh, in any culture at a, at a given time. Um, and I feel like we're in a really, uh, well, obviously a rich time for, for horror, but a time that I think horror is kind of going mainstream again in a lot of ways. Um, so it's probably a time when people's interest has peaked. And this is like a great time to kind of go maybe beyond just the, you know, the blockbuster horror films that we're all really enjoying and, I guess taking a little bit of a deeper and richer look um, at horror, kind of where it's where it's come from and maybe where it's going as well. Yeah, it's it, there's that Dostoevsky quote about uh, the quality of a society can be measured by its prisoners. Maybe a quality of a society could be measured by its horror movies. <laughs> I like it. Yes, I love that. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Uh, so, and they are such a good mirror, I guess, to everything that's wrong and sick with society as well. So uh, the inverse to that is that they are a great barometer, as Andy was kind of suggesting as well, for uh, cultural anxieties and things that might not be quite working or are provoking this collective kind of tension, I guess. So yeah. that's another reason why it's so useful to regularly check in <laughs> with the genre. <laughs> Check it with the horror climate. Do you think there's still a problem with horror not being taken seriously by the general public? And is this part of what this conference is here to repair? I think, yeah, it's yeah. interesting. I'm sure, sure something that we something that we might talk about is the fact that 
horror has a slightly different cultural identity and reception in different countries. So having horror experts from um, Japan, for instance, it will help us to reflect on whether that's a particularly Australian or US kind of cultural cringe thing. I, I, I don't know what your thoughts are on that, Andy. We both love some particularly dodgy horror movies, Andy and I, so we're, we are acutely aware of this issue. <laughs> <laughs> like, like anything else, right, like horror, in, you know, any other genre, um, horror, yeah, it goes from not just popularity but, you know, being, as you say, being taken seriously or not, you know, horror films you know, have, you know, have won Oscars in the past, but at the same time, you know, they've also been, you know, legislated against if we think of the UK and its video nasties uh, campaign from the 1980s. So, yeah, I think if anything, horrors are, I don't know, being taken too seriously right now, but maybe that's mm. just a personal opinion. <laughs> we, of course, have the, the rise of this popular term that, you know, that the quote-unquote elevated horror film, um, you know, that, that um, studios, mainly US studios like A24, have done such a wonderful job in kind of pushing this idea of kind of, um, horror films with a you know with a social bent to them or something like that, which on one hand is absolutely fabulous because it's getting more people out to see horror films that might not otherwise have felt comfortable with it. Um, but at the same time, you know the the term elevated horror presumes that the rest of horror is kind of you know a bit crappy, right? And and I think that that leads us to kind of undervalue um, some other forms of of horror that aren't coming out of kind of prestigious um, you know RP studios. Um, yeah, so I guess like yes and no. There's a there's a great unhelpful answer. Mm, I, I I feel I'm in the the no camp there. I think it's uh, something that devalues this term elevated horror, devalues this amazing body of work that came before it, and says that says that these these films had nothing to say, which is absolutely not true. Mm. Um, so I, I, I really hope that, and, and from what I can see, that's um, going to be talked about uh, at the conference and even the, the Focus on the Dead program will be a way for people to maybe see that that's not, it's not the case that elevated horror is the thing that has made horror relevant to us in terms of commentary about society and our goings on. So, yeah, it's, it, if I think of it as a marketing tool, I can live with it. But otherwise, I hate it. I hate. That yeah, term. yeah, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. If but it's a marketing tool that gets people seeing more horror. Great. But otherwise. Mm. Yeah. And it gets more films being made fabulous. But um, I guess can you guys tell us a little bit about, we'll talk a little bit about the panels that you're being directly, you're both directly involved with, just so people have got a little bit of an idea of what you'll be dig- digging into and dangle the carrots. So, for instance, Andrew, mm-hmm. you're chairing the roundtable on streaming genre and horror, which Jessica is also taking part in. So maybe both of you can answer how you see these streaming platforms having influenced the consumption and and therefore the production of horror films. Yeah, absolutely. I'm, I'm so excited. I put my hand up immediately as soon as we came, uh, came up with the idea of doing a, an entirely streaming horror genre um, panel. Jess and I have both done a bit of research in the kind of um, in the streaming area, but also particularly looking at how kind of different genres are kind of enunciated across both you know, mainstream uh, streamers like Netflix or Prime Video, where horror is, is a surprisingly big part um, of their catalogue and certainly some of their both commissions and, as you say, original productions as well. Um, but, you know, we recently wrote about the, you know, I think the really interesting niche streaming service Shudder, which is probably the, the globally dominant, you know, genre-specific streaming service, although there are others in different parts um, of the world. And I think 
that's just one part of it. You can obviously look at, yes, you know, horror is, is always a, a genre that's had enough of an audience to sustain it. You know, it's always been commercially viable, even, you know, on the, on the, on the, in, in the most kind of marginalised sense. Um, but at the same time, I think it's interesting to see how horror is kind of used differently outside of the kind of traditional niche um, spaces, how something like Netflix, and I know Jess has done a lot of research on this, you know, it really interestingly mixes expectations of horror or in some cases kind of reframes or rebrands horror as maybe something that could be appealing outside of that traditional niche audience. Jess, do you want to speak to that a bit? Mm. Yeah, some of my research looks into Netflix's family content, so shows like Stranger Things, which mm. maybe in the broadcast TV era we wouldn't have thought of as family content, but streaming services are able to mess with the boundaries when it comes to classification frameworks and child versus adult content. So mm. we've had seen this rise of, I guess, kids or family content that is more troubling than we might have previously expected before the rise of streaming. And, yes, Andy and I were very proud to have published together the first article in the world, academic article on Shudder, the horror-specific oh, wow. streaming service. Very exciting, very exciting um, achievement. But as Andy's suggesting, that that those niche streaming services, which is becoming more of a market more broadly, that they also seem primed to shift the way we watch and think about horror. Yeah, I was very excited to witness Skinner Marink on Shudder as a Shudder original. I think that was a very exciting development in horror at the moment. Amazing uh, film. Yeah. Yes, I loved that film. Yep, yep, exactly. It's very polarising, but I think that it's almost a new horror language in some ways, which is pretty exciting to see. But also, Jessica, you're chairing a couple of panels yourself and one one on folk horror and the other is on the horror exhibition and festivals, which is one you co-chair with the wonderful Angela Nadalianis, who I've heard speak a number of times and she's amazing. So first concerning this horror exhibition and festivals um, and following on from this discussion about streaming too, what is this, the state, do you see, of horror distribution, exhibition and, and festivals around the globe today? Um, maybe comparatively speaking to my, 10 years ago or something like that? Mm, yeah, it's an interesting question and we were keen to ha- bring in the voices of actual film programmers and festival organisers because they probably have a better sense of how things are changing on the ground. Mm. Um, And obviously we've seen the last couple of years of the apocalypse where things have had to really slow down and um, organisations like Monster Fest have had to experiment with different ways of doing things. Uh, Monster Fest did for a very short time have a streaming platform that as they kind of, I guess, experimented with. There's so many film film festivals uh, had to do. So another part of that, I guess, is niche distribution, not just Shutter, but niche uh, DVD labels like Monster Pictures, which is um, part of that whole Monster Fest label. So I guess we will see what the um, festival organisers and programmers have to say about that issue. But again, I, I feel that the very rapid kind of evolution of streaming might have complicated things slightly but I definitely sense in the last couple of years a really big appetite from film 
fanatics and horror fiends to get out there in the, into the world and actually take part in events like this and like and and film festivals like Fantastic Film Festival Australia and Monster Fest. And I, th- I think that's a really good thing about that panel. One of the reasons I'm looking forward to it so much is it's got you know real um, industry veterans who've been working in the horror uh, kind of distribution and exhibition for a long time, but it's also got you know people working in kind of more niche you know art horror essentially pop-up festivals that are that are newer or, you know, new, yeah, as, as Jess mentioned, something like Fantastic Film Festival um, Australia, which is which is really quite new and is, is going absolutely great guns. So I think it'll give a, a given nice range of people who've experienced, you know, I guess, far, you know, far more, you know, the last 20 years of um, exhibition in uh, particularly Australia, but also elsewhere as well. Hmm. And finally, there's that that panel on folk horror as well. So just regarding this whole, it's a bit of a phenomenon at the, at the moment, this subgenre of um, folk horrors had a bit of a renaissance recently. Do you kind of attribute that to anything in particular or it's just the it's time? <laughs> <laughs> yes, well, maybe come to the panel and find out. Yeah. I, I, I have a, my own a nice teaser. Believe us on. I've done a little bit of research on this. It is really complicated the way folk horror has kind of ebbed and flowed. Uh, the, the the mode of filmmaking has been around for a long time. Most people associate it with The Wicker Man as one of the the cornerstones of the of the kind of subgenre. But it's really this term has really only started to have any currency in mainstream um, understanding, I guess, in the last few years. Really, mm. so we've seen um, you know the the great documentary which is also on Shudder which catalogues folk horror which I think has kind of set expectations around what that actually is but it's actually quite an amorphous diffuse assemblage of films which is something that we'll be working through I suppose in that panel what actually is folk horror and why is it having a moment. I think it certainly doesn't hurt that some of the um, these as you say kind of elevated folk horror films like you know Robert Eggers The, the Witch or um uh, Ariasta's Midsummer work in this vein, or at least pull some influences that. So, you know, as we said, even if it's even if Elevator Horror is just a marketing buzz, it's it's maybe drawn, hopefully, um, drawn the attention of some people to go, oh, well, I want to, you know, I want to learn the further history mm. of where those mo- those modern filmmakers are pulling those influences on. And that's the great thing about folk horror. There's such a deep and rich and diverse history to to look at. So I think I, I, we're looking forward to seeing quite a few different perspectives on folk horror in that panel, you know, not just from, you know, um, you know, the UK where we think of a lot of folk horror filmmaking coming from, but other parts of the world as well. We dig up the runes and find out the what histories of folk horror yes. are, uh, uh, will haunt us with. Jessica and Andrew, thank you so much for joining us. And uh, I will say that... Um, the Romero Talk is also screening a recently restored early Thank Romero short called uh, Elegy from 1963. Sorry, there was just a bit of a delay there. <laughs> um, uh, so if you would like to attend the Mapping Global Horror Australia, Japan and Beyond Conference, it's running from 10 to 4 p.m. this Friday and 10 to 5 p.m. this Saturday at the Australian Centre for the Moving Image. Tickets are $70 and get you into all the talks over two days. Both days end with in-conversation film screenings that are ticketed separately. Natalie Erica James's Relic on Friday at 6pm and Kayako Asakura's My Girlfriend is a Serial Killer on Saturday at 8pm. Tickets for those are $18 each. All tickets, times and informations can be found on ACME's website at acmi.net.au. Melbourne's own 
Triple R. Welcome back to Primal Screen and Triple R with uh, Emma Westwood and myself, Paul Anthony Nelson. And just prior to those station announcements, you heard As Late As The Hour May Be, which features in Relic, which is just one of the films screening in the Australian Centre of the Moving Images Focus on the Dead, which is screening in conjunction with their Mapping Global Horror Australia, Japan and Beyond conference. Um, it's running from the Thursday the 16th, this Thursday, to April 2nd. The films begin this Friday, uh, this Thursday with George A. Romero's original 1968 classic Night of the Living Dead. Includes the new 3D 4K restoration of 1978's Dawn of the Dead, as well as his Day of the Dead, and many others we'll get into now. I'm wondering if um, how ill the 3D version of Dawn of the Dead will make you feel, especially when there's that kind of, you know, drawn and quartered um, oh. zombie ripping scene. That will be very spectacular. Choking him! <laughs> yeah. But, yes, anyway, I, I just was um, – I'm not going to be quite as comprehensive as Paul's potted uh, history that he gave us <laughs> at the start of this, uh, of this show. But um, uh, the Focus on the Dead or the Focus on Dead um, uh, program at ACME, which um, – when does that conclude? 2nd of April. So yeah. these films are screening a few times or whatever, uh, is um, – well, it's on – on the dead films primarily, which is these, uh, they're the central, the fulcrum of this program. So that's being Night of the Living Dead, Dawn of the Dead and Day of the Dead, that trilogy, which is um, Romero's films. Um, thank you from the University of Pittsburgh who are, um, who are bringing out those prints for us here to enjoy. But um, so basically the, the idea behind this program is zombies as we as we know them, let's just say. But um, zombies that um, uh, before they before we got to the Romero films, which is where um, I think modern-day zombies have really fully been crafted from, that's where mm. we kind of recognise them from, um, I think it's important to remember, or it's, it's just nice to know that uh, uh, to sort of position the zombie, I've, I think, in terms of uh, where they came from, which was this Haitian folklore. That's basically what the zombie, the term zombie came from. And um, they did actually crop up in films before Romero. Um, things like in this kind of guise of the Haitian voodoo black magic zombie, which is something that sprang initially or straight to mind for me was Val Luton's I Walk With a Zombie from the 1943, which is a spectacular film. But in these kind of early depictions of zombies, they were usually kind of fairly inanimate, really. Mm. White, uh, white zombie, the, uh, uh, yes, the Bella the Lugosi, Lugosi film Lugosi. from 1932. Yeah. And their threat sort of came from the fact that you know, the voodoo magic itself had been used to resurrect them from, from the dead, not as much the threat that they posed to those around them, if you know what I mean. It was more just this scary instance that this could happen. Mm. Um, so in this modern age of zombies, those um, voodoo origins have really been lost and replaced with other socioeconomic causes for zombieism. So as, um, you know, uh, Jess and Andrew were talking about this kind of comment on what's going on in society. So mass consumerism, which came out beautifully in uh, especially Night of the Living Dead, and viruses, mm. which is um, going to be a very popular one at the moment. There is a film on um, Shudder called The Sadness. don't know whether you've seen that, Paul. I have not. I've heard of it, though. Okay. That's a that's a good little zombie film for people to take a look at if they have uh, Shudder at Those all. Those with strong stomachs. Uh, yes, yes. Mm. <laughs> 
particularly effective <laughs> Taiwanese film. So mm. a nice, a different society to comment on, one that we don't often get to see in cinema. So, and in these films anyway, the zombies pose a far greater threat to humankind because they feed on the flesh of those who are still alive and consequently they turn them into zombies too. Um, so we can thank Romero really for coming up for that and um, and for the other filmmakers who since then have propagated mm. these zombie traits like, you know, the fast zombies rather than lumbering zombies and so on. Um, but we can also thank Richard Matheson who wrote a short novel, it was very short, uh, called I Am Legend in 1954. And his book was about a post-apocalyptic society where only one man had survived and he was battling against these undead creatures. I won't call them zombies, actually, mm. who would come out at night to terrorise him. They're not quite zombies and they're not quite vampires. No, but there's Somewhere a more between. of the... the, the it was, while it was a definite influence, you know, on this um, Romero developing his new zombie mould as such... And Romero is actually... Come out and said that. Yeah, yeah. That I Am Legend was his influence. He's acknowledged, he's definitely acknowledged that. That whole vampire thing, I think you see the vampirism um, through this, like he repels them with garlic and they can't stand their own reflection and and they only come out at night. But then, and they also sort of seem smarter than the average zombie, like Mm. they use their smarts to kind of return to him again and again. They know where he is. And try and bait him and and taunt him. him. Yeah, Yeah. and it's and this and it's really about this lonely character and the the psycho the the psychotic state he's he's put in Mm. from this loneliness and this taunting. And I remember one thing in the book that I don't think I've seen in any of the films that are based on I Am Legend, but the women particularly taunt him. They take off their clothes Mm. and they jump irate in front of him because they know that he's a lonely man. Yes, and, yeah. Um, very interesting. Obviously, I don't think it appeared in um, in these films because it was possibly seen as a bit too seductive or X-rated. But anyway, um, so this book was for, first adapted into a film way before Night of the Living Dead. Well, when I say way before, it was a few years beforehand. And that film, um, which is called The Last Man on Earth – made in 1964, starring Vincent Price as that last man on earth. Uh, it's been, it's been um, programmed as part of this Acme's Focus on the Dead program. So I kind of want to pick it out because mm. it's one of the earlier films in the program. It's one of the ones that comes before Night of the Living Dead. So if people have really, you know, interest in this, it's a really good place to start and, uh, and then get a sense of create your journey through the program or um, get a real feeling for how these films, these very important zombie movies as well, have been placed in history. Mm. Um, so, yeah. That's that's what I thought. But also um, the other films I should mention that have been based on um, uh, I Am Legend. Legend are actually I Am Legend, not surprisingly, <laughs> uh, and uh, The Amiga Man. Yes. Yeah, as uh, well. Weirdo classics, all three of them. Mm-hmm. Um, the Amiga Man with Vin- uh, with um, old mate Charlton Heston. Old gunning, mate Charlton gunning, Heston. Gunning down a uh, city street in a large car, grinning incessantly. Exactly, and exactly. Will Smith in, in I Am Legend. But it's, yeah, this, this program's interesting. As you say, Em, if you follow it as a uh, chronological narrative, you start with, you know, the I Am Legend, direct I Am Legend adaptation, then you go to the Night of the Living Dead, which is a film influenced by... I Am Legend, and then you go through that trilogy, Dawn of the Dead, Day of the Dead, and then you kind of end up in films that are influenced by the, that trilogy, like Bruce LaBruce's queer horror film Otto <laughs> or Up With Dead People, 
um, which was famous for being, I, I think, no, it was no, LA that was, Zombie that was, was the one LA that was Zombie, banned, yes. But then yes. this was like the slightly more palatable version that he made. Yes, um, afterwards. Mm. And then, as you say before, films that comment on certain sociological ills and in different countries, like Train to Busan from uh, South Korea. Which, which is, is a rollicking ripper ride oh. of a film. That's like a super adventure f- zombie film. So much fun. Yeah. I yep. was at a New Year's Eve one year. It was the best movie to go out on. <laughs> Uh, but again, and at- Atlantics, a- which is not a really a zombie. I, I don't feel that that's as zombie-like. It, it's it's more of It's more of the Haitian yeah, zombie it's almost folklore. like a full circle coming back yeah. around to that. It's an African film. set in Senegal. It's um, Senegalese, I believe. Yeah, and a love story, which mm. is not unusual for horror movies to have uh, love stories in there. And this is – it's uh, it, it's a very – in its detail of the society, it's a very interesting film. And the, and the zombies, if we want to call them that, are – quite creepy. I found it very creepy. The the wide eyes. Yeah, it's interesting and and look kind of similar to the I Walked with a Zombie. Mm, Yes. And it's it's that whole idea like Train to Busan is a class story. Atlantics is a story about, you know, people who are seeking... Refugees. uh, Seeking asylum Mm. but also seeking work Mm -hmm. on fishing trawlers and things like that and then Mm -hmm. getting lost and coming back as zombies. So, and yeah, so the, so in that way, and then Relic, of course, is commenting, you know, on, on dementia and aging and, and, you know, family dynamics. So all of that is, yeah, it's, it's a fairly broad example and internationally and thematically of how the zombie film Mm. is a, uh, is a commentary on so many things. So that is our little uh, potted trailer, uh, (laughs) the the pricey uh, preview of, Acme's focus on the dead season. So the first screening is this Thursday, March 16 at 6.30pm of George A. Romero's Night of the Living Dead and screenings continue through to April 2nd. Um, Times and tickets can be found on acmi.net.au. And speaking of said conference... We're delighted to be joined by a filmmaker who this Friday evening will be doing an in-conversation at, at Acme with former Plato's, Co- uh, Plato's Cove, <laughs> former Plato's Cave superstar, co-host Alexandra Helen Nicholas, alongside a screening of her chilling film Relic, and she'll also be appearing on the Filmmakers on Horror panel on Saturday at 12pm. It's the film's director, co-screenwriter and dual actor award nominee, if you don't mind, Natalie Erica James. Hi, Natalie. Hello. Thanks for having me. Thanks so much for joining us. So right up top, as an independent filmmaker, um, genre myself, um, I have to say, uh, so you and Relic are representing the Australia part of the conferences, Australia, Japan and Beyond Remit. So I have two questions Mm -hmm. for you, but they may coalesce into one. The first is, how difficult was it to get a horror film made in Australia during the you, like using the usual funding bodies? And how did Jake mm. Gyllenhaal and the Russo brothers fit in? I suspect one may have something to do with the other. Yeah, it's always it's always it's a common question. Um, people are always interested in uh, Jake's involvement on set for sure. Um, but also the Avengers guys. Back. It's like you don't see that on on Australian films. Like it's just like what. <laughs> Yeah, I have to say um, it was, I think it's something to do with my, you know, having very um, globally facing producers, Carver Films, um, who had already established a way of working in that way of 
the Australian funding as well as getting on board international partners. So definitely they already had that mindset. And then um, I think U.S. reps really helped because they kind of opened the doors and, you know, you go to L.A. and do your water bottle tour mm-hmm. and pitch your film. And that's kind of how it all came about. Um, so, yeah. Fantastic. That's it, excellent. Um, know, I, I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm so impressed that, that you just managed to get a film like this made here. Um, it's uh, of that sort of, yeah, level and quality. I know what um, Natalie's talking about with Carver Films as well because there was a film that they released called Partisan with Vincent... Vincent Cassel, which was one that I kind of, it sort of flew under the radar, I think, for a lot of people. And it was um, a particularly excellent film um, that Alexandra Hella Nicholas tipped me off on, uh, to be totally honest. And uh, I encourage people just to try and seek it out. 2015, I believe it was made. But yeah, I I feel that Natalie Relic and um, Partisan are kind of. When when I'd say yeah, they feel international, um, mm. and and you actually yourself you identify as a Japanese Australian person. Um, so, am I correct in saying that there are a number of J horror elements to Relic that you've brought that yeah. into? Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. I, um, I was definitely uh, a huge fan of J-horror kind of growing up and, and really consumed it as a teen um, at sleepovers and the rest. <laughs> and that kind of just permeated, um, you know, the my psyche. And, uh, you know, it's a, it's a big passion of mine because I love how Asian horror in particular tends to be about kind of wronged women. But then, um, you know, a lot of the conclusion of it seems to be about kind of making peace with the ghost. Mm. Um, so it's not necessarily about, you know, vanquishing evil once and for all. It's it's a lot more about, um, you know, healing. And um, there's an energy about that I really like and that I try to put into Relic. Oh, that's a, that's actually a really good point. I was thinking more around the the symbolism of the the kind of the creeping water stains and um, oh yeah, even yep, there was yeah, and there was a particularly excellent uh, scene uh, where or, or even a, a shot where you have um, Robin Nevin as the um, the grandmother. How she has she's approaching a door and she has this the long grey hair covering her face which is a really you know a j-horror thing or um black hair in in certain j-horror um but then you play with it I like the way that she's you think that she's approaching the door but she's actually backing into the door because she then throws her hair back and it 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 really screws with our perspective (laughs) it's quite disconcerting Uh it made me sort of go oh hang on what am I looking at almost like that she'd had a head twisted around the wrong way or something like that, it's, which also plays out in horror movies, but not in, in, in this case. So, um, yeah, amazing. is this something? Oh, I was just going to say, yes? it definitely, I mean, I, I really love, um, I guess, using movement to kind of convey a sense of the uncanny. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's just one of the ways that uh, I think Asian horror does it amazingly. And yeah. one of my big, uh, the things that I kind of uh, took from that genre um, as opposed to, you know, the more traditional jump scares. I, I really love the idea of kind of building tension within a frame and finding new ways to do that. So, And yeah. this is something that you're looking at exploring more in um, your upcoming projects, is that right, as in, in terms of J-horror? Um, 
yeah, a little bit. I think I think I would say like a J horror sensibility, but not necessarily as closely linked. Right. Um, I'm working on a few things at the moment, and one of them is um, a kind of a prequel to a, an old '60s horror film. So it, it's definitely aesthetically quite different. Um, yeah. What 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 was the the old '60s horror film? Uh, can you, oh, are, you allowed, are you allowed to say? Are you allowed yeah, to I say? Yeah, I think it's out there. Yeah, why not? It's um, it's Rosemary's Baby. So oh, we're doing a little. Oh, okay. Wow. Uh, yeah, we're doing a little prequel to that, um, based on one of the characters who, um, uh, Terry, who passes away in the first twenty minutes of the film. Uh-huh. So yeah, it's really exciting. I, I definitely. Definitely wouldn't have come on board to do a um, a remake of any sort. So I think this is really distinct and, um, you know, references mythology from the original but uh, hopefully stands on its own two feet. Wow. So nice. so Terry is the, the, the girl who's living with the Cassavettes in the – in the film yeah. is that right yeah. okay wonderful yeah. that's really interesting that's a whole let's get back to relic i was just gonna say <laughs> i'm have, sorry now's no, now set me off have you seen natalie have you seen a film from the 40s called um the seventh victim i haven't no mm. seek that out yeah it's a okay. it's a val luton produced film oh well we'll be t- val luton's getting a lot of plugs on tonight's it's, show val luton's great. <laughs> So while uh, but similar in vibe, to, it's it's to a it's a woman who falls in with a group of Satanists in New York in the forties. Oh, great! Yeah, awesome. there you go. That's your that's your homework from our show tonight. <laughs> um, and it's like seven, sixty-five minutes long, and it's yeah. It's great. <laughs> I think it's. It, I get the feeling watching Relic that it's a very personal film to you as both the director and as the co-writer, obviously. Um, so, what can we see of your story and the women in your life in Relic? Yeah, it's pretty closely linked to my own personal story, I would say. Um, My own grandmother had Alzheimer's and it was really the genesis of um, Relic, uh, this trip I had where I visited her and there had been a bit of a gap between the last time I'd seen her. And she really, um, she couldn't remember who I was. And I guess uh, the, the sense of guilt from that was really a feeling that was the starting point for Relic. Um, I think a lot of the relationships within the film aren't necessarily, you know, um, uh, exactly like my own, but there's kind of shades of that, you know, the kind of intergenerational kind of patterns that get passed down. And I, I guess overarchingly, like the fear of your, you know, grandparents' mortality and by extension, your parents and by extension, your own. So yeah, very much tapping into my own kind of um, deep-seated fears. Do you, um, do you want to give the, just a potted synopsis of the film? I realise we haven't really presented that. So people know what, what that's sitting, you know, where that comes from. Um, so yeah, in your sure. own words, yeah. Um, so I guess you'd call it a psychological horror and the story, uh, follows a woman who's visiting her child or has to return to her childhood home because her elderly mother goes missing. And although she returns a few days later, she comes back slightly changed and they start to realize there's a sinister presence within the house. So it is really a meditation on our fears surrounding uh, Alzheimer's and dementia, uh, aging, and I guess, yeah, mortality and our impermanence, mm-hmm. all the fun things. <laughs> is there a sort of, is one of those fears a possible communicability of those things? I think 
for me, it's a hopeful ending. I don't want to give away no, too no, much, no, but I, be, hmm. yeah, I don't know. I think, I think it's very much, the film is very much about, it sounds depressing, but it's very much about the value of the, our connections in the face of all that. So, hmm. um, Bring, yeah. bringing us full circle with the J horror thing. It's about making friends with the ghost. It's, it's about right. exactly. it's not trying to vanquish it. Are no, you from Creswick, right. Natalie, at all? Because there's the Creswick. Yeah, you are. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not. I have no connection whatsoever that I can claim. But um, they just have great pine plantations. What can yep. I say? Yep, yep. Because it does <laughs> look. Moody. It does look amazing. And um, there, there is. Did you actually get a day where you had the fog through the the the, the pine plant? There was kind of like a misty fog that no. was almost in one of the shots. Yeah, no, that's just painstaking kind of, you know, tubes of fog set up everywhere. Well, <laughs> I love that it's not CGI. I was, yeah, that's, yeah. That's so good. I thought then you were going to say CGI, but that's really pleasing that uh, you actually went to the trouble. Of... <laughs> it looked great. I do tend to prefer the practical for sure, yeah. I yeah. was wondering whether you were going to be so lucky to have struck out and got this foggy, misty day in Creswick, but alas, no. So, uh, I think. I think this is maybe the uh, the cabin shot was a little bit more foggy, but yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, so just on that, I guess finally before we uh, wrap up, um, this that might be part of it. Do you have any advice for any low, other low budget filmmakers out there who might be wanting to make horror in Australia? Uh, yeah, it's quite a broad question, but I would say really um, chase your own passion, right? And um, don't ch- chase the trends because I think by the time you get around to making the film, you'll be well past the trend. Um, I think a lot of people get into horror filmmaking because it's um, traditionally a very low budget kind of thing to do. It's like usually a single location and you don't need name attached for cast. Uh, but I think there's also a danger in, um, you know, just I guess it's just making sure that you're you're really passionate and it's the right vehicle for the story. Yeah, that's great. And to be globally focused and uh, seek out international sales agents and get to know movie stars. <laughs> <laughs> Do the hard yards, <laughs> the water bottle tour. <laughs> oh, well, on that, um, in that vein, I would say as well, make a proof of concept and then go around the world with the short film that you make, even if they're small festivals, and then you'll meet your agents and then you'll maybe meet Jake Gyllenhaal. <laughs> perfect, perfect advice. And, and, that, and that short film was Creswick, isn't it, which people should seek out too if they haven't seen that. Uh, yeah. Natalie, Erica, James, it was a pleasure to chat to you. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. And so you, you too can see Natalie on uh, this Friday night at the Australian Centre for the Moving Image at a screening of her film Relic, in which she'll be having a chat and in conversation with Alexandra Helen Nicholas afterwards. Tonight's special was all about uh, a couple of events happening at the Australian Centre for the Moving Image over the next few weeks. This weekend's Mapping Global Horror Conference on the 17th and 18th of March and the Focus on the Dead film season, which begins Thursday and runs until April 2nd. Um, all times and, uh, and ticket info can be found at acmi.net.au. You can listen back to our show tonight within half an hour on Triple R On Demand or check out the songs we played on the Primal Screen page at rrr.org.au right now. You can also subscribe to the Primal Screen podcast via iTunes or wherever else you find your favourite podcasts. Thanks for joining me on this wild ride, Emma. 
It's been wild, baby. <laughs> Always wild with you, Paulie. Always wild. <laughs> Always feel vague. A pleasure. A pleasure indeed. A pleasure indeed. And now we shall go and stalk the land for human flesh as the undead do. It's good night from us. Thanks for listening to Primal Screen, a weekly radio show airing Monday evenings on Triple R. Hope you've enjoyed the podcast version and feel free to get in touch via the Primal Screen Facebook page or the Triple R website. 